This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha Spahaloscha. And this week we are going to talk about why it is my opinion that Parsha Spahaloscha is the most difficult of Parshios. And as we'll see, I mean this on more than one level. The difficulty of Spahaloscha takes more than one form. And while there may be many other Parshios up there that can be described as challenging, hard to learn, hard to understand... Bahaloscha um, is one that I personally um, struggle with every time I learn it. And again, for multiple reasons, as I'm going to explain. And what we will try to do is decipher this very difficult Parsha, like we normally do for every Parsha, but with the unique challenges that are posed by Parsha's Bahaloscha. Uh, before we do, let's thank our sponsors. First, Anonymous, Lili. And second-time sponsors, Yonah and Chani Laster, thank you so much. Anyone else who wants to sponsor, reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. That's the database, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com. And don't forget, that's also the place that you can reach out to me if you have any comments or questions um, on any of the content that we do in these shiurim or any of the other shiurim here at the database. Okay, now, Parshas Baha'at Loscha. Again, challenging for several reasons. Um, but the, the I, I guess we, we'll, we'll put it into maybe three reasons for the difficulty in Parshas Baha'a And one of them is just unique, that we don't find this anywhere else in the Torah. And the other two issues are issues that you do find in other Parshios, but it could be not as much so as we find it in Parshas Baha'a so the first thing that I would say is challenging about Parshas Baha'a is the general structuring and um, inclusion of various topics. We always try to address structure in the Parsha. We always try to understand what the rhyme and reason for any topic in any Parsha is. Why does this Parsha discuss this topic? And also the ordering of topics. So... So it's not, you know, like just trying to understand maybe also the, the unifying theme of the topics. So we try to do that in every Parsha. Now, there's some Parshas that have many mitzvot, and it seems miscellaneous, and we try to find the structure there. Here, it just seems to be so that we have maybe some halachos scattered around, and there are some really random topics that just don't seem to fit any theme. And so, we, for example, we have Pesach Sheni at one point. We have um, the discussion of, of the Levim being uh, invested um, into their positions as Levim to do the Avodah. Again, random topics. We have the menorah. The, the, the Parsha starts off with the menorah. Why is the menorah the umbrella under which the entire Parsha um, fits? And then, of course, there's all the different topics about the complaining and this complaint and that complaint and the misononym and the misavim or the asafsuf. It's just very complicated. There's so many different stories and topics, right? This is not just a parsha of narrative and it's not just a parsha of mitzvos. It's really almost a split. So really makes you wonder. Like, you know, we have a parsha like Mishpatim Kedoshim or Kiseitse, where you have a lot of mitzvos. So, okay, so you have, you know, you have a lot of mitzvos, and the whole Parsha is really just mitzvos. 
maybe Kisisa is a little bit more challenging, maybe Shalach next week's parsha is a little bit more challenging because you find narrative and mitzvahs in both. But with Mahaloscha, you really have um, a, a, a pretty, um, almost even split, I would say, between narrative and other random topics. So what's going on here? We have the structural issue that we normally have. The other issue is the issue that makes this Parsha uniquely difficult, even though, again, you do find other Parshas that have this kind of issue, but it's the emotional aspect. And meaning, it's difficult to read a Parsha where you see such an intense downward spiral for Klaisrael. Um This Parsha, I, honestly, I get anxious every year before Parshas Baha'u'llah. And not only that, it's... it's specifically that aliyah where things have that negative turn, that downward turn. I don't recall at this moment if, if, if it's uh, Rivi'i or Hamishi. Um, or I know I think Shishi, also, uh, Shishi definitely has some of the negative in it. It could be it's Hamishi or Shishi. But that aliyah is a long-packed aliyah of just a lot of negative energy. And it's particularly hard to understand, as we'll see in a moment, where that that downward spiral started because everything seemed to have been going really well up until that point. So it's just a hard part to understand what was the turning point, the negative turning point. And emotionally, it's difficult. So it's difficult emotionally and it's difficult intellectually because to, if you want to understand you know, how to be attacking, what, where, where do things go wrong, what could have been changed, and it's very hard to pick that out. And then, of course, there's the other issue, the monkey wrench that we have in Parshas Palos that we don't find in any other Parsha in Chumash, and that is the new Sefer, right? The upside-down nuns that we have smack in the middle of the Parsha with the Parsha of Vayihib and Soah Aron and Vnucho Yamar. So we have um, two little psukim that are kind of just like shtupped in the middle of the Parsha, and Chazal tells that this is actually an entire Sefer. These two psukim make up a Sefer, and they apparently don't belong where they are, but they belong somewhere else. We'll have to talk about where they belong. And we'll also have to talk about what they're doing here. They're apparently there to separate or to demarcate a line between different kinds of Averos. But what's not clear is why this set of Averos here is unique, that it kind of needs that kind of a hefsik. Why, why, why is this there? And just for, you know, for Pashup Shah, understanding of structure, this is one of those things that just confuses everything. It just uh, throws everything on its head. So we're going to try to address all of these issues. So once again, just to summarize those issues, because there were a lot there. We have first, you know, the, the, the mixed messages about the state of Kleistra, because again, there was a negative term, but at first it was not like that. Right? So if you look, for example, at Pesach Sheni, or the faithful travel system, which the Torah records. At Pesach Sheni was individuals who wanted to do more mitzvahs. They were upset that they didn't get a chilek in the mitzvah. The travel system spoke about how al pi Hashem yachanu and al pi Hashem yiso, that they camped when Hashem said camp, they traveled when, Has- when Hashem said travel, and they, they did everything with faith. That's, that, that sounds like a Kalani Yisrael that, that, that is inspired and optimistic. Kleinstrahl is depicted in such an overwhelmingly positive light. And yet, we have the series of unfortunate events unfolding in the latter half of Baha'u'llah, which reflects so negatively on Kleinstrahl. At this point, they seem jaded and bitter. So the question is, where did this transition come from? What, in fact, was the turning point? So that's, that's, that's the emotional aspect. Um, 
Okay, and then we also have the the topical issue, right? Between the menorah, Pesach Sheni, the consecration of Levi, and all the chaos that breaks loose in the midbar, there does not seem to be a single unifying theme. So, like, what what is the method to the topics that are discussed here? So, second issue, and again, the third issue is the apparently new sefer that's bracketed in between the backwards or upside down letter nuns. Right, so we say that Chazal said that this book was relocated from its original spot, and the nuns serve as a sign of sorts that this book was moved. And Chazal said it's inserted to separate between tragedies. So we don't really find this anywhere else in the Torah. So what exactly is the reason behind this separation? These are the, the major challenges of Parshas Baha'u'llah. Before we go any further, let us um, just list off all the topics, all the sections. I was able to turn it, I was able to put it all into seven sections, even though you can argue that there are more. It's such a packed Parsha. But the Parsha begins with the menorah. Right, Parshas Nasso, Bamidbar and Nasso was all seemingly very, you know, it was, it was housekeeping, there was a lot of numbers and lists, and it was pretty, pretty simple. All of a sudden here, we're learning about the menorah, then we learn about the consecration of the Levium. This is as opposed to the consecration of the Kohanim, which was recorded in Parshas Tzav. Here we learn about the Levium, the age limit for a Levi serving, um, then in section three, we go back to narrative, and this is one of those places where we know about Ein Muktimumuchar Batora, where everyone has to admit that it, that it exists here, because we have now a calendar date that takes place before um, the events of Parshas Bamidbar. Right, Parshas Bamidbar, we have a calendar date there, and clearly Pesach Sheni over here is going back to an earlier date. So, Mufarsh um, can talk about why this is not in the beginning of the Midbar. Chronologically, it should have been. So, some of the Mufarsh addressed that. But that's section three, Pesach Sheni. Then, four, we have a bunch of topics that's like, what are these doing here? But we have. Um, we have the system in which clients shall follow the cloud. We spoke about that. Then the Chumash describes the trumpets, a separate mitzvah that they had to um, that they had to make and blow these trumpets um, for, for war or for gathering. For Yamim Tovim, they had these trumpets for there were their multi-purpose trumpets. And the Chumash here also describes the order of the travel groups as, a, as the journey begins. So this whole little section, it's really not a little section, it's a big section, um, section four, I refer to it as travel prep. So we have this travel prep, which includes following the clouds, right? Um, you know, in Harry Potter, they follow the spiders. So here we follow the clouds. Um, then we have the trumpets. And then we have uh, the order of the travel groups as, they, as the journey begins. Then section five, we have the story of Chovav. Chovav, who Pashab Shad is either Yisro or maybe he is, um, it could be he's a son of Yisro. Um, it's it's not completely clear, and even you know even within the Rishonim, the Pashtonim, you find different approaches. Basic approach from Chazal is that Chovav is Yisro, so we'll just go with that for now. And Chovav wants to go home, and it's a Machlokas Rishonim when this story even happened. Right, so um, first of all, does Chovah, so when did Chovah really have this conversation with Moshe? Chovah wants to leave, Moshe says, no, we need you, stay with us. And then there's a whole separate question, what, what did Chovah do? The Chumash does not even tell us what Chovah's decision was. Did Chovah stay with the Ibn Israel? Did he ultimately go home? Not a word from the Chumash about what he did. And the Mepharshim are split on this. You could look up the Mepharshim yourself to see what they say. But that's its own mystery. 
I don't know if we'll have time for today. You know, maybe we'll come back to it. But just realize the, the, this, this enigma. So we have so many topics in Baha'u'llah, so we're not even finished. So that's Chovav. Then we have the Chumash describing in section 6, we have the travel from Sinai, and that's where we have the interjection of the new Sefer, of Vayhi ben Soha Aron, Vayam Ramosha, and the new Vnucho Yomar. It's basically what that little, um, without um, addressing yet why this is here, what is the content of the new Sefer that that was um, reinserted, you know, it was inserted here? Where did it actually belong? So the Chumash here in this in these two Pesukim, Abayi ben Soha Aron, Ivnu Chayomar, which should be familiar from our davening, um, when you take out the Torah, you say Abayi ben Soha, when you put the Torah away, we say Ivnu Chayomar. That's describing the tefillah of Moshe Rabbeinu. At the time that they would travel, Moshe Rabbeinu would pray, This is Moshe praying to Hashem that the enemies be, um, um, be thwarted and be um, withheld from attacking, doing anything to Klai Israel. And then Vinicho Yomar is Shuvah Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu calls on Hashem, he summons Hashem to be with Klai Israel, basically. But um, um, what's, that's what's being described. It's basically when they prepare to travel and they have the Aron with them, so Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to Hashem as they camp and as they travel. So, Pashup Shat, where did this chapter actually belong? These two, this book, these two Psukim, where do they belong? So I think some of the Mepharshim say it belongs in Parshas by Midbar, but I think more Pashup Shat, and there are some Mepharshim that say this as well, but even so our own, technically, if it was removed from somewhere and it was, it was transplanted here, even on um, Ali Day of the Torah itself, the place that it would have belonged would have been before the Chovav story, um, in, sec- in that which I called section four, the travel prep, right? The following the clouds, the trumpets, and the order of the travel groups as the journey begins. Right? The journey is about to begin. So if the journey is about to begin, so then um, we, we have the Vayihib and Sa'aron, which talks about, you know, Apiyashem Vayachno, Apiyashem Iso. Here we have um, um, a, a reference to the Vayihib and Sa'aron, the Aron traveling, and then Uvunu Choyomar, which is Vayachno. The, they're, they're relaxing, they're camping, they're, they're settling down. So you have that there. So this belongs in the travel prep section. Okay, fine. Then, so then we have section seven. We have, um, I, I title just this one section, which I'm putting all the rest of Baha'u'llah in, and I just call it chaos, because that's literally what it is. We have first start off with the misonanim, which literally can be translated as um, as uh, complainers or mourners, they were kimisonanim, they were mourning themselves, as it were. The Chumash does not tell us what the content of their complaint was, which is what leads Chazal to believe that it was just a pretext. It was not anything specific. They were complaining about everything, which essentially means they were complaining about nothing, right? When, uh, when you complain about everything, so I heard this from Rav Moshe Shrek, um, of the Hollywood steeple. Um, he says that when you complain about everything, essentially you're complaining about nothing. What you're really complaining about is yourself. Right? You're, you're the one who has the issue. If, if, you know, if a kid comes home from school and you say, oh, how was your day? And he says, it was horrible and school was awful. So then you say, okay, well, what, 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 what went wrong? And the answer is, oh, everything. So if it's everything, so, you know, when you can point at everything, it probably means that you can point at nothing and you're the issue. And for Kleinstall, that was exactly the problem when they were misowning him. So that then they were the people were burnt at the place that was named Tavera, and just like the you know which means um, burning, 
um, their anger flared, so now Hashem's anger flared back. Then we have the story of the Asaf Suf, um, translated by art scrolls, the rabble rousers, um, and they were complaining about something specific, about the month. They wanted different kinds of food. Then we have the story of Kivro Sataiva, that this is where Hashem ultimately killed them. Before that happens, um, and if you wanted to hear more on Kivro Sataiva, you've got to go to Musr Minutes for a take-home Musr Mavart. Um, um, if you have seven to eight minutes, it's, it's worth your time. Um, so go to Muslim Minutes to hear that on Kivros Hataiva about the death of desire. What is true satisfaction? How can you fight off the Eight Sahara? Go there, listen. But in this story, um, the Bnei Israel are not the only ones complaining, but Moshe Rabbeinu complains. He asks Hashem um, out of desperation, like, get me out of here. And Hashem institutes um, the Sanhedrin, the Zikanim, to join Moshe Rabbeinu. Then we have the story of Eldad and Medad, who are the leftover prophets. They, um, um, you know, they, they were individuals who... Um, so there was a, a mathematical issue, and this is math that even um, I'm able to do. But there... Um, the Sanhedrin was meant to have 70 members, and there were 12 Shvatim. And so to divide, um, to divide that up, there was going to have to be six um, members from each Shevet to join the Sanhedrin. Or really, um, he would have had to have had six members from each of ten tribes and then five from only the other two. So the problem was obviously that not each Shevet would have equal representation, so what Moshe Rabbeinu did instead was have six from each Shevet, and they would, they would all participate in a lottery so that there would be 72 individuals in, um, um, you know, in the general lottery, um, and obviously two of them would, would lose. And then whoever, you know, whoever would be picked, the, those would be the Sanhedrin. Now, Eldad and Medad, they never inserted their names into the lottery right? for the second uh, Harry Potter reference of the Sheer, Eldon Meda did not put their names into the Goblet of Fire right? Um, they, they did not enter their names into the lottery and yet they won they, they, their, their, name, their names were chosen they were, they were um, somehow they, they were going to be cho- um, because they, they ha- how were they chosen? they started receiving prophecy now, a, a, a larger story that we just don't have the time for now, but if you, know, if you want to see more on this, please reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. I have written up essays on so many of these difficult issues in the parsha, which, again, we just don't have time to get to all of them today. But Yehoshua gets really upset at these individuals, Eldad and Medad, prophesying in the camp, not listening um, to the orders to come to the lottery, and different explanations of why Moshe Rabbeinu defended them. Moshe Rabbeinu did not have a problem with them. And Eldad and were just acting out of humility. So a lot there, just again, not for now. But this is just among the chaos. It's after this story that we get to the story of the Slav, which is going back to Kivros HaTaiva, which we alluded to earlier. Um, so that's where the people who complained, the Asaf Suf, finally died from the quail that they were given. Okay, and then after that story, we have one more negative story, if you, can, if you could stomach it. Um, we have uh, Miriam's reports against Moshe Rabbeinu, in which the Torah finally tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu is the un of Ma'od Mikol Adam, the, the, greatest, um, of all, of, you know, the greatest man in terms of his humility. And we also hear about his, his Mila as a Navi, he's the greatest Navi also. So we hear a lot about that, but Miriam 
for whatever reason, she um, speaks ill about Moshe Rabbeinu, about his actions, about Moshe Rabbeinu's understanding of his own stature, and we have Hashem coming to Moshe Rabbeinu's aid, um, and um, we have uh, Aaron and Miriam and the Tzara'as, and Moshe Rabbeinu davening for her, Ana kel um, or really he just says kel the word Ana in Yedid Nefesh was added by... Um, the composer of that tune, um, or of that of those words, I should say. Um, but uh, if you're looking for a tune for for Shabbos davening this week, so about to be the workshop, a little incorporation here. So you know you could use the, you did nefesh, but not for now. Uh, but what is for now is to try to understand all these different topics. So once again, there's so many of them. But we have the menorah, the consecration of the Levim, we have Pesach Sheni, we have the travel prep, which includes the following of the clouds system, the trumpets, the order of the travel groups. We have the story of Chovah, we have the story of the travel from Harsinai with the interjection of the new savior of Avayi ben Soa. And then we have a bunch of chaotic stories from the Misonanim to the Asaf Suf to learning about the institution of the Sanhedrin, Eldad and Medad, um, Kibar Sataiva, and then Miriam's Lashon Hara against Moshe Rabbeinu. And then that's where the Parsha leaves us. That's where we leave the Parsha. But now what do we do with all of this? So again, very, very difficult Parsha. So if we could split it up the way the Chumash splits it up, by that Parsha that's stuck in between, the Sefer that's stuck in between, the Vayib and Soa, maybe that's a line of demarcation at least between two halves of the Parsha. So let's use that for... Now, just to try to have a better understanding of what's happening in this parsha. If we split the parsha into two portions, we would say the first portion is obviously less negative. It's a little bit more positive. Um, we have some mitzvah topics. So that's the first portion. And the second portion is all the negative that, that, uh, that comes afterwards. So, so we have, I guess, the positive and the negative, if we can simplify it. But is that it? Is it just a matter of positive versus negative? And is there a method to the topics that are discussed here? So with that in mind, with this question, we are going to focus on a number of Mepharshim, but we're going to spend um, some time on the approach of the Svarno. So let's let's try to address each topic. Uh, Before we even move forward, there is a basic overall approach that can answer a lot, not all of our questions, but a lot of our questions. And that is what we've alluded to earlier, that that's the journey prep theory. And the journey prep theory basically um, acknowledges that Klai Israel is really at the cusp of entering Eretz Yisrael until the negative events that transpire in Ba'al Klai Israel was on their way. We're going to see this in the Sparno as well. But without the Sparno, just very simply, Look at the Parsha and you'll see a Klai Yisrael that is on their way into Eretz Yisrael up until the negative events take place. Midbar, Naso, we already started talking about in the past couple of Parshios how the Torah was setting up at this point the encampment and the travel system so that Klai Yisrael could eventually just walk over, you know, um, you know, walk over the line and enter into Eretz Yisrael. It would have been that simple. We know that in Parsha Shlach, next week's Parsha, that's where things really, really get bad. But the beginning of that, the prelude to everything that's going to take place in Shlach with the Chet Maraglin, spoiler, the prelude is all here in Baha'u'llah. This is the first sign that things are going wrong. 
And we're going to have to find out within the very first sign that we find here in Baha'u'llah, what is the, um, the first sign within the first sign, right? Because we still haven't identified what the turning point is. So we'll have to get there. But just look at the topics, the trumpets, the camp system. All of these things are, are emphasizing that important issue. Right, this explains the, the trumpets, the consecration of Levi. This also explains Chovav. Right? Whenever it happened, it doesn't really matter for now, but the question of whether or not Chovav would join them on their way into Eretz Yisrael is an appropriate question to address when we're talking about Klai Yisrael actually getting on their way to go into Eretz Yisrael. Now, what about the menorah? What's the menorah doing here? The opening of the Parsha, Baha'a is named after the kindling of the menorah. Right? The word Baha'a um, refers to the kindling. So what's that doing here? So Rashi quotes the, um, the famous opinion from the Midrash from Chazal that, um, and the Ramban quotes it as well, but that this is actually a follow-up um, to the Carbonus of the Nisim, which we spoke about last week, the, the tributes. Each Shevet had a representative offering a carbon for the Chanukah and Mizbeach, and apparently, except for one tribe, the tribe of Levi. Aaron um, was... Um, discouraged and upset that he didn't um, have the opportunity to engage in a special avoda to thank Hashem for for um, the Chanukah and Mizbeach. And it's strange. We have to really address this issue. What, why, of all the amazing avodas that Aaron has the source of doing, the Ketores, Yom Kippur avoda, all of these things, and yet um, this was uh, this for some reason was upsetting to him. This is a question um, raised by the Ramban. But apparently the menorah was the thing that pacified Aaron, not just a consolation prize necessarily, but perhaps even greater, as the Ramban puts it. But somehow the menorah was, uh, in which, uh, which um, uh, apparently the menorah complements the Mizbeach. The menorah shines the light on everything that's taking place in the Heichal, and apparently the menorah represents an avoda of thanking Hashem, and it's, uh, it's a daily avoda. It's not just the, you know, the first you know, inauguration of the Mizbeach, but in fact, it's an everyday. It's an everyday inauguration, if you think about it. So, the Ramban puts it even more elaborately in reference to Chanukah. We know that the end of Naso and the beginning of Mahaloska is the Kriyas Torah for Zos Chanukah, um, and the Ramban says that the mitzvah of the Menorah actually alludes to the times of the Makabim, right, who were Kohanim, and there was going to be a special. Um, a special nace that was going to take place Ali Day the Menorah and it would be the Nasiris Nefesh of the Kohanim in that time that would enable the continuation of Olivoda when the Mizbeach would be rededicated. Right? So this is the first Chanukah Mizbeach, but we know Chanukah celebrates a later Chanukah Mizbeach, and the menorah is the symbol of that later Chanukah Mizbeach, and that's what's alluded to here. So all of that makes sense, Al Pidrash. Al Pipshah, it's still hard to understand what that's doing here. Right? So the Rashbam talks about how. Um, the Rashbam answers in a um, part of a question that we would have asked that the beginning of Baha'u'llah topically should have belonged in Parshas, maybe Emor, where it talks about the menorah, or Parshas Tetzava, where it talks about the menorah, or Parshas Truma, where it talks about the menorah. What's it doing here all the way towards the Midbar? Where, you know, by Midbar, we're, we're leaving and we're getting our, we're on our way to Eretz Israel. What's that doing here? So the Rashbam says it has to do with the Tadiros, the, uh, the um, for for generations afterwards, so it would be an everyday thing. It would not just be a, a thing of the past, a thing of when the Mishkan was built. But the menorah and the Beis Hamikdash had to be constantly kindled and rekindled. 
So that's what's being referenced here. Rav Hirsch has a symbolic approach that we're not going to touch on today, but talks about the relevance um, of the menorah to the journey through the Midbar, but we don't have time for that right now. But um, how about Pesach Sheni? What's Pesach Sheni doing here? Right, This one's off, especially because of the dates. So there's a, there's a, um, so Rashi talks about how, why this was not put at the beginning of Bamidbar, because even though it reflects really well on the individuals involved in the story, the ones who wanted to, um, be more dedicated to Hashem, they said, oh, no, we were Tami Mesa, we were in the middle of a mitzvah, but we couldn't do Karban Pesach. So they were given the opportunity to do Pesach Sheni in ER. Nonetheless, um, it's, uh, it, it reflects negatively on the rest of Klai Yisrael who were not able to engage in the mitzvah of Karban Pesach throughout their travels in the Midbar. The Ramban talks about this as well, that he, 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 um, he says that the reason why Pesach Sheni is recorded here is because it's here to partially allude to a bigger question of why this was the only Pesach that they observed at that time, right? Um, and he, he mentions that there are 40 years of dangerous travel with no protection from the cloud, so they couldn't do Brasmila. And therefore, there could not be any other Karbanos Pesach offered while they were in the Midbar. Now, these 40 years, where did those 40 years come from? The, there wasn't supposed to be a 40 years. They're supposed to go right into the land. Ah, so now we're seeing in Bahaloska where there's a negative turn causing there to only be a one, uh, one Pesach throughout their, throughout their 40 years. So now we're finally starting to see a little bit. Um, the Rashbam talks about how um, here we're getting a little bit of a differentiation between Pesach Ladurus and Pesach the Mitzrayim, the Pesach that was offered in Mitzrayim versus the Pesach that would be offered for generations to come. So as we are in the Midbar, the Rashbam says, now we're focusing on that because we are on their way into Eretz Yisrael, so now we're going to learn about what the carbon Pesach will look like in the future. Finally, um, uh, before we get to the Svarno, which I keep on promising, the Arachayim and the Meshachachma both make reference to the fact that the carbon Pesach is a response to the Egel. The Egel, which Egel? The Egel from Parshas Kisisa, so many Parshas ago? Yes, because, you know, we're going back in time in Bamidbar, right? We spoke about the time travel that takes place in Bamidbar. And with that, we are understanding that once the Mishkan was completed at the end of Shemos, and then we get into Vayikar to learn how to use the Mishkan, now we're journeying forth, right? That's Bamidbar. We're journeying forth, and Bahaloscha is part of that journeying forward. And now... To counteract the um, the Egel, we have the carbon which Meshachachma says the ultimate anti-Vodazara carbon, as Rabbi Rosner refers to this Meshachachma, the ultimate anti-Vodazara carbon is the carbon Pesach, right? The slaughtering of the Egyptian god and slaughtering of all other pagan gods. So the Archaim says, despite the fact that we engaged in the Chet Egel, um, we still have carbon Pesach, we're still Zocha to do it. Meshachachma says, not just despite, Meshachachma says, Dafka, in response to the eagle, to counteract the eagle, we have to rededicate ourselves with Pesach, and therefore we have Pesach Shemi here as well. Now, the Sfarno ties a bunch of the topics together. This I refer to as the four deeds approach. The Sfarno says that there are four mysim, four acts, four deeds, four mitzvos that really should have earned us an immediate ticket, immediate rights to entry into Eretz Yisrael. And if not for the negative events that transpire later in our Parsha, these four events would have taken us right into the land. These four events, say the Svarno, are the Chanukah Mizbeach, which culminates with the menorah at the beginning of our Parsha. That's number one. Number two is the Chinuch Levim, the consecration and the inauguration of the Levim. Three is Pesach Sheni. And then four is the travel system, which 
the Svarno summarizes with the words, obviously playing off of the Pesukim from Yirmiyah, which talks about the faith of Kleistral, just following Hashem from Midbar, doing what Hashem says without asking questions. Right, so this, uh, this particular um, series of four deeds, which we're wondering, what are they all doing here? But now, the Sfarno says these four things would have gotten us right into the land. What's so significant about these four, these four deeds? The Chanukah's Mezbeach, the Chanukah Levim, Pesach Sheni, Lechem Acharel, Kichem Bebed, Barberitz, Lozero. What's that doing there? So, Leonidas Daitia would suggest that these four deeds are a reference to really the turnarounds that we've been talking about, looking at the panoramic view of the Torah, going from the time that we messed up with the Egel and forward up until where we are now. This is about the rededication, right? We know that the, um, the Chanukah's Mezbeach, which is the culmination, it's the climax of the completing of the Mishkan, the Avodah for Hashem, that is a recreation, it's a rededication, it's a recreation of Harsina, like Thurnban says. Right? And we know Rashi says it's all in the Tome for the Egel. So as we are journeying forward, the rites of passage, the Gentile Eretz Yisrael, is all the things that speak to this rededication. This also explains why the Chinuch Levium is important. How does this speak to the Chetah Egel? Well, the Pidyon for the Bechoros, the redemption, the exchange for the Bechoros was the Levium. And the Chumash talks about that right here. So right now we're picking up the scraps from the Egel. It's Chaval, because next week we're going we're gonna to have to deal with a whole new set of problems with the Meraglim. But before we get there, Bahaloscha is actually picking up the scraps from the Egel, all the things that would have enabled us to travel forward. Right? So we said the Chanukah Samizbeach, we have the Chinuch Levim. Karban Pesach, we spoke about already. That's the anti Vodazara Karban. Meshachachma, the Archaim, this is for sure a response to the Egel. And then finally, the Lech Tamachar El Kechem Midbar, Beres Lozerua, traveling into the Midbar. Of course, the um, following Hashem means not following the Egel, following Hashem and following his leaders. And not, and you know, the, the, the questions that we refused. To, to ask the right way in Kisisa, now all of a sudden we're not only, um, you know, we're, we're being respectful, but the way we travel, we're not even asking the questions. We're just trusting and following, as opposed to by the ego when they just bombarded Aaron and said, here, this is what's happening. Right? So now in the beginning of our parish, we have Aaron kindling the menorah. No one's attacking Aaron, but Aaron's doing what he's supposed to do. Kalaistral's doing what they're supposed to do. The ego has finally been reversed in full, and then everything is going well. Right, so then, so then what happens? Well, why does everything all of a sudden not go well? So the Chumash tells us that, um, that there's apparently a new safer stuck in here to separate between different tragedies. So among the tragedies, clearly we have the Masonanim. That's, that's like the first obvious one, but apparently there's one before that. Right, we have the Vayisume the, HaRashem. They traveled away from the mountain of Hashem. Here, says Ramban, lies the the sin and the sin apparently is the way they ran away from our Sinai the hesitancy the apprehension the don't give us more mitzvos says the Ramban based on the Midrash um, it's, a, it's a Midrash that's hard to find um, I have the source written down if you want it just reach out to me at the database at gmail.com but the Midrash says like Tinokos shall be Sraban Tinokos children students running away from school Right, so it's not it's not talking about the way teachers run away from school, which might even be even faster, but um, but the way the students run away from school. So the way the students run away from school was how Klai Sarel left Har Sinai, afraid of receiving more mitzvos. So 
This does not seem like the same Klai Yisrael that said, hey, we want Karban Pesach, we want Pesach Sheni. Or the Klai Yisrael that's not asking any questions. We're traveling when Hashem says travel. We stop when Hashem says stop. When he, he says jump, we say how high. That's the Klai Yisrael you see at the beginning of the parish. All of a sudden you have this at the, the, this point. And is it, is it, is it true that Klai Yisrael you know, ran away screaming schools out? Right? Like, that's one question. Another question you have to ask is, we don't, you know, just put a demarcation line between all of Eros that Klaistral did. So there's some who try to explain the Ramban, why, because the Ramban says we're trying to separate between the Averos. They explain that it means that we're trying to not have a, um, if you look at the art scroll Ramban, they have this in one of the notes. We don't want to create a negative Chazaka at the very beginning of Klaistral's travel. Right? There might be a set of three Averos somewhere. But the negative chazak at the beginning, um, that, that's, uh, that's, the, that doesn't reflect really well. It's not, it doesn't look nice for Klai Yisrael. Now, even though a lot of Bahalos is not flattering for Klai Yisrael, it could be the reason why we don't want to have this negative chazak in the beginning, so you shouldn't think that Klai Yisrael were always bound to fail. But on the contrary, they could have succeeded. There was, you know, we, we don't believe, you know, in the Christian concept of original sin, that we just have sin in our nature, there's no way to reverse it. Right? Maybe to an extent we believe that we, the Eight Sahara is part of us, but we are, you know, we are able to conquer it. So the question is, where do things go wrong? It's not even so clear where things went wrong. The whole second half of Baha'u'llah, you know, this is the emotional and intellectual struggle. How can we prevent it in the future? You know, things can be going well one minute, and the next minute they're not. So then you have misonanim complaining apparently about nothing because they're, they're complaining about everything and therefore nothing. So how, did you, how, how do you get from point A to point B? Where did this all come from? So, um, Pashup Shad is that it's, just, it's, it's never clear. You know, in life, everything can be going well, and it can be going so well to a point that eventually it just doesn't go well. You know, there could be a burnout, even from doing all the right things. There could be a burnout. And even though, you know, you're supposed to have faith, and in general, it's, uh, we, we, we commend people who don't ask too many questions. At the same time, it's important to ask questions. It's important to get the ta'ameha mitzvah. It's important to get the satisfaction of having clarity in what you're doing. So you're allowed to ask questions. And Kleistrel could be they were a little bit burnt out from just doing and doing and doing all the na'ase, all that we will do without the nishma. Right? Yeah, there's a point where you have to also try to allow yourself to be comfortable with the circumstance, to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And it could be that's part of what went wrong, that at a certain point, Klai was like, okay, it's a lot of mitzvahs, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of dedication that we have to have. It's getting a little bit difficult. Right? I don't think they ran away from Harsinai saying school's out. But there was a hesitance. There's a, there was a sigh of relief. Right? Not every child hates school to the core. Right? Some children, they just rather not be there. They just rather be on vacation, and who wouldn't? So there's a little bit of a relief when they leave. There's a little bit of relief when they leave the base medrash. It's difficult. But there's, there, there's a way to overcome that, too. But where did that come from? I, wanted, I once wanted to argue that Chovav's apprehension, we don't hear if he stayed or if he went, or did he stay or did he go. We really don't know. It's Machlokas Rishonim. But the Chumash apparently doesn't care about that right now. The Chumash just wants you to know that he raised the question. It could be this level of apprehension which the Mechabe Vesatora, the man, Chova of Yisro, who loved the Torah nonetheless, was still apprehensive about going forward towards um, the mission. So maybe that, that created a little bit of an apprehension in Klai Yisrael. Even if Yisro ultimately went, 
but just raising the question, you know, raised doubts for Kleisrael, possibly. But whatever it was, it was subtle. It was hard to catch. And this means that you can never put your guard down against the Yitzhahara. Things can go wrong, um, you know, uh, just like that. And it's tragic. And it's emotionally difficult to understand. Everything was going so well, and all of a sudden, things just unraveled. And the goal has to be what we've said at the, at the outset of Sefer Bamidbar. And that is everyone has to know their role. Everyone has to stay in their spot. Don't leave your spot. Just don't leave your post. Know where you're supposed to be. Be there. And do what you're supposed to do without complaining about it. Um, and if you have questions, there's a respectful way to do that. Being misononym or kemisononym is never appropriate. And I think that's the moral here. You know, the first obvious, right, the, 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 the first not obvious of Eira is the way they left Harsinai. Okay, you know, they were apprehensive, and maybe we could understand it even if it wasn't, you know, the best um, and most flattering picture of Klai Israel. But okay, we could understand that. But don't drop everything. Don't drop the ball and then become Kim Isonanim. Because, you know, with all the apprehension, the understandable apprehension, everyone needs a recess now and then. That's understandable. We need a break. Okay, there's a time to camp, but complaining is never appropriate. And there's, and there's a way to address issues that you have. And Klai Israel just dropped the ball. And we're going to see them drop the ball even harder in next week's Parsha. But um, we will be looking for the silver lining and everything. We'll try to see how the scraps can be picked up even after all of this. But in the desert that is safer but midbar um it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better but bezra Hashem will get through it together okay that takes us through parsha thank you for joining us have an absolutely wonderful shabbos and thank you for joining us at the database